from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. This week, sharing is caring. We'll be discussing what sustainability means to urban planning, as well as getting a planner's thoughts on shared economies with Terra Informer Elizabeth Dowdell and recent planning graduate Sonic Patel. Then we'll hear Terra Informer Sydney Carbonic talk tool sharing with Graham Hansen, an entrepreneur who is interested in collaborative consumption. But first, here are this week's headlines. Alberta's wildfire season is already in full swing, with an out-of-control wildfire in northern Alberta forcing the evacuation of the town of High Level, as well as the evacuation of hundreds of residents from the Denaital First Nation. As of May 23rd, the Chuck Egg Creek Fire in northern Alberta had an area of 976 square kilometers. On the night of Monday, May 20th, Chief and Council announced an evacuation order for Bushy River, with 200 residents now staying in High Prairie, Slave Lake, Peace River, and the Beaver Lake Cree Nation. Residents of reserves neighboring Bushy River were evacuated the following day. Elders, children, and individuals with respiratory issues were moved out of the community of Chate due to the health risks accompanying the thick smoke in the area. The Denaital First Nation's Facebook page is posting frequent updates on the state of the wildfire, as well as providing information on where evacuees can access services, supplies, and assistance. That's it for headlines, and now on to this week's stories. First up, Terra Informer Elizabeth Dowdell speaks with Sonic Patel, a recent graduate of the School of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Alberta. How do city planners incorporate sustainability into the function and layout of the communities we live in? Does sustainability mean new bike lanes and green spaces, or does it go deeper? Here's Sonic and Elizabeth to answer those questions, and some other questions about planning you might not know you had. So my name is Sonic Patel. I just graduated from the Bachelor of Arts program at the School of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Alberta. The tenet of planning is effectively how do we design our cities to maximize um, the comfort of the citizens, the economic returns that we receive, and our environmental impact. So it's a very holistic practice that combines a lot of features. It's how do we design things and how do we build stuff, but it's kind of not at that technical scale of how do we physically build it, but more sort of how do we locate it, how do we how do we measure how these components interact with each other. So it's really designing this mechanism that is the city to operate as effectively as possible. Do you ever talk about sustainability in the planning program and can you maybe define how or tell me how you define sustainability with this planning sort of background? I think sustainability is 
it's more just a theme that's underwoven into almost all the classes. And it's one of the components that kind of goes into this idea of holistic planning. And so from our, our perspective, sustainable development is not just about the environment. I mean, that's one of the four pillars that comprises sustainable development. Um, one of them is the social dimension. And you know, we know that things you need to account for the social realm. If we're gonna build stuff, it has to be to the benefit of the citizens in the city. Um, there's an economic development component. There is a thing about sustainable economics. And finally, and a very crucial piece is this political dimension. And that's really what takes all these other considerations and is the determinant about whether that actually goes into practice or not. So when we look at whether things are sustainable, we evaluate them based off of these four pillars. Are they good for the environment? Are they good for the people? Are they good for the economy? And is it politically feasible to implement? And if all those check out, that kind of fulfills sustainable development. Um, and if there's conflicts with them, we kind of try and resolve them as best we can. But that, that's often where the challenge with sustainable development comes in, is how do you balance all these issues? So you sort of defined urban planning around the comfort of cities and people living in cities. And mm -hmm. around climate change, is there anything to comment on in regards to how cities are going to become uncomfortable and what, what sort of tools planning is looking at? A really big element that we often talk about is this idea of resilience, mm -hmm. which you know, is referred to as, as kind of the city's ability to either absorb or um, adapt to changes. And in a climate change world, we're going to start, or a world where climate change becomes more impactful, both in terms of frequency of changes and magnitude of those changes, I think this idea of resilience is going to become crucial in cities. And we are starting to see that with like the 100 cities, 100 resilient cities movement, which is um, a really cool website if anyone wants to check it out. But if we define resilience as kind of hazard times mitigation, and then incorporating adaptive capacity at the end of it, as our hazards increase, the need for resilience becomes more important. So... On the planning perspective, what does that look like? You know, do we need to start avoiding building near the water? And um, we're starting to see some of that in like Calgary post-2013. They start to have, or they're potentially incorporating greater constrictions around what kind of floodplain you're allowed to develop in. Um, in places like Miami, you're starting to see kind of floodgates be built taller and taller to anticipate a sea level rise. So I think this idea of building communities that are more resilient to dynamic climate impacts is gonna start to become far more crucial. And I think cities right now are making a major attempt to be mitigative. Sometimes these cities are going to be forced to be reactive to changes, and I think that'll really change the way our our cities develop. Some of your work experience, have you felt or seen that this kind of resilient building or this kind of climate conscious building is a priority right now? I think um, I'll give a little bit of context. I spent eight months working as a planner during a co-op full-time during my ex education and then uh, another eight months working part-time. Um, I, I wouldn't say I've seen it significantly, but it's also because I do a lot of work. I think I did all my work in Alberta entirely. So it often was hard to describe what these changes would be to people because I think where we are located geologically and the capacity that we have to adapt to change means that some people aren't as aware of, say, if you lived on the coast and sea level was rising. But that being said, when you do work in places like Fort McMurray, where I did some uh, work for Wood Buffalo, and I did a little bit of work up north as well in Norman Wells, and yeah, you are seeing these communities that are acknowledging that this threat exists, but not quite fully making that connection to climate action yet, but are still making these kind of resilient measures to increase their mitigation and adaptive potential. Sometimes it seems like, you know, if you check enough boxes that you have bike lanes or some mm -hmm. boulevard trees or yes. uh, green space that, okay, you've 
you've checked off the resilience box, your city will be fine when climate change comes. Yeah, and like, how do you, what's the right measure to take? Do we bar all development in the floodplain? That's a huge economic loss because those property values are much higher. Um, but the damage that could be done is also higher. Do we build those houses and then build a berm? Well, then are we just delaying how long the floodplain is before that berm gets like over overfilled? And so I think that is a complex discussion to have and is pretty case specific to to what degree do we actually try and mitigate these disasters and how do we build adaptive capacity and that can refer to that's so when when you get knocked off equilibrium your adaptive capacity is your ability to return and that is a lot of elements it's you know of course financial it takes a lot of money to to rebuild and and return to this course of action there's a huge degree of social um, capital that goes into this as well and a good example is Fort McMurray, because you see a, a community that was really significantly affected, and you see adjacent communities really pull together to help them. And I think that support system was crucial to the rate of recovery, which wasn't immediate, but certainly could have been worse than what we saw. Those are very difficult to build. How do you like? How do you build that social network? The tangible benefits of doing it aren't always clear when they're not reactive. Um, do you want to comment on some of the? maybe concrete or some of the tangible ways that planning builds resilience or that you uh, sure. like approach yeah. planning to be more resilient? The the obvious one is is built for. Um, so there's stuff like, I know New York is making measures to build along the shoreline and they're adding this kind of shoreline park, but it's also built on a slope so that it is adaptive and as the sea level rises, it can mm-hmm. accommodate some of that additional changes. Sometimes it's, it's purely mitigative, like with Calgary and their expansion to uh, water reservoirs, so expanding that so that their their flood response could be better. Um, so a lot of these build changes can occur. Yeah, things like no development within this distance of, of the water, having, you know, flood-proof homes, which is difficult to have. There's a lot of examples. I think what's really interesting is how do we build this social and economic capacity to respond to it? Um, the economic one's interesting because it often isn't the city, but it's actually insurance companies that really provide that financial ability to rebuild. But um, can cities do more to have the funding to respond to disasters? Can they do more to provide funding to mitigate disasters? There's also ideas about like social equity. Um, so in the case of a disaster, the people who are hit hardest are people who are lower income or are marginalized in some way because they don't have that just inherent advantage of having the, the wealth to respond to disasters. They can often be hit harder because they don't have the ability to prepare themselves for disasters. They don't have the ability to leave the city in the case of an evacuation. So this, there's this huge social inequity that could be addressed that could help provide greater mitigation for a larger portion of the population if with some level of wealth redistribution. But I also think sustainable development goes beyond the planning scope. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with doing this development is because of the way we've distributed our powers, this multi-level effort from every order of government in Canada. And I mean, like, there's great examples of that. Um, like we know one of the one of the best things we can do for reducing our GHG emissions is to try and reduce our transportation emissions, which account for a significant. There are about 30% of Edmonton's total greenhouse gas productions is from vehicles. So we can encourage things like electric vehicles um, by providing better built form for them. But we also need the province to provide um, subsidies for electric vehicles. So we need this kind of multi-level support. And, you know, if Edmonton is pro-climate action and Alberta is um, anti-climate action, yeah, then, I mean, our efforts are effectively going to be stymied by the provinces. So if you're not working together, then your effect is nowhere near what it could be with some level of coordination between all these orders. 
Speaking of things like electric vehicles and built environment, one of the big issues with climate change, sort of this driving of emissions, is consumption. We hear about that a lot Mm -hmm. in many different places. I'm curious, with this background in planning, what you think about things like sharing economies or collective consumption. On this idea of consumption, I think what's really interesting is planning, unfortunately, often has to be reactive to what people want because of the levels of bureaucracy it has to go through. It has to go through administration. Sometimes it goes through consultants and subconsultants, and then it gets taken to council, and council approves it if they feel like it's within the direction that they think the city should be going in. And so as a result of this, it's a little difficult for the city to try and anticipate a change because that's a big risk, and I think governments, for the most part, are kind of inherently risk-averse. But there are kind of two ways to look at this, and... One of them is this idea of induced demand. People will do what is most convenient to them, and if you can change the environment around them, you can induce that change. And so a good way to think about this is in terms of transportation. And a lot of people you know, in Edmonton say, well, it's so much easier to go everywhere by car, why would I take transit? And so the discussion becomes, is Edmonton an inherently car-oriented city? Or if we make our transit faster than cars and more convenient and more efficient than cars, will people switch over to using transit? But I think the majority of people will always do what is most economic and what's most convenient for them to do. One, one of the principles we learned about is this idea of the iron law of congestion. So if you have a two-lane highway and it's always packed, and so the city uh, justifiably says, we're going to add a third lane to this highway because it's always congested. What this postulates, as you'll see, is over enough time, enough people will see that that road has now become quick enough that they'll start to use it. And as more people use it, you'll fill up that third lane and you'll actually go back to the same level of congestion that you originally started with. So what this effectively means is that regardless of what kind of infrastructure you build, people will end up filling it up. So why not make an effort to go for something like transit or pedestrians or cycling that we know is more environmentally friendly, but we also know is more economically um, beneficial for development and we know has greater social values in terms of raising social capital, building social networks. And so there is a lot of research on why sustainable development, that being transit and active transportation, has benefits in those environmental, social, economic realms. And the, the kind of people don't want to do it argument might not be valid. Hmm. So if we take that approach, is it within the city's bounds to say, okay, well, we know the majority of you drive, but we don't want that. So what we're going to do is stop investing in our road infrastructure and start investing in our, in our cycling infrastructure and our transit infrastructure. I think some people might erroneously believe that that's what's happening in Edmonton, which is fair. And, you know, we do hear about we're building bike lanes, we're redoing our our transit system to be more efficient. I think the piece that goes missing often in the media is how much we spend on road infrastructure. These millions of dollars that are wasted on cycling infrastructure is a fraction of what we spend on our roads. Is that investment worth it? And will people make that change? Is there a role for planning to play where we can make changes to, say, the way we build a city or our city functions that allow us to share things like bike ownership or car ownership or tools or that it doesn't have to be maybe so individualized? Are there Mm -hmm. ways to to build that in to the way a city operates for the comfort and for the convenience of its citizens? On that idea of what induced demand means, you could effectively say if the city builds for sharing of, of, say, transportation modes to be um, more efficient, the logic is that most people will do that. And so what that means is we make it harder or we make it less efficient for people to own their own method of transportation. 
So say if you own your car and you go and you park downtown and you go to your job and then you go back and you drive home, if we get rid of that parking stall, well, now it becomes a little bit harder for you to do, to use a private mode of transportation. But say you use an Uber carpool, well, now you don't need to worry about parking. And so if the convenience of being able to get dropped off, not having to work about parking is worth it for you, both time-wise and financially, then that becomes what you're going to end up doing. I think a lot of people will not be happy with that response <laughs> if the city doesn't want to make significant strides towards um, sustainability and they have this induced demand approach. There is a significant rationale for making these choices that encourage people to share their, their cycling infrastructure. I think if you don't want to take the induced demand approach, there is still a lot of evidence for why sharing economies could be valuable. And I think that's a cultural reaction. I think there is a shift in our culture away from the values of ownership. I think this younger generation doesn't see that as quite as important as, as older generations did. Um, like a car is a good example. I think in the, the previous century, a car was really emblematic of, you know, becoming an adult, of having your own freedom. I think there might be a growing shift to people who say, well, it, it, having a car is not important. What's more important is having access to a car. Why would I buy my own car when I could have any, almost any car in the city using Uber? But as we enter this culture where ownership becomes less important than access, I think we'll start to see that sharing economy start to rise in prevalence because it fits that cultural norm of access to a good. And it's also more economic in a lot of cases than owning your own vehicle or owning your own home. Yeah, and then planning in this case, if it's reactive to this change, will start to support these models as more people start to use them. So kind of two approaches. One is one is proactive and attempting to cause that change and one is reactive. But I think in either scenario, the value of a circular economy is beneficial. And I think planning can support that. And I think whether it, sh it should do it ahead of time or, or after the fact is debatable. That was Elizabeth Dowdell interviewing Sonic Patel, a recent grad of the School of Urban and Regional Planning. For links to some of the things that Sonic mentioned in the interview, including the Resilient Cities website, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. To continue with the theme of sustainability and shared economies, we are bringing you an interview that Terra Informer Sydney Carbonic did with the entrepreneur Graham Hansen at Sea Tribe. Graham's interests in collaborative consumption and shared economies inspired him to start up Toolshare, a website that connects people who have tools to people who need tools. Here's Sydney Carbonic and Graham Hansen with the details. In three words, who is Graham Hansen? In three words? It's probably the toughest question <laughs> I've ever had. No. <laughs> I'm definitely an entrepreneur. I want to make a difference. Uh, obviously, let's, we'll say forward thinking. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, How did I become an entrepreneur? I've always actually wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had always had plans to have a, a typical job, 
go to school and get a job and then I would have always have like a side gig. So I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I realized um, one, I didn't like people working for people and two, I feel like I can leverage my time better and make myself money and, and use that money to for opportunities and things uh, uh, versus having somebody else leverage my time. So what exactly is Toolshare? So Toolshare is like Airbnb, uh, but for tools. So we're a web-based platform. We connect people without tools to people with tools. Say you have to clean your gutters once a year. Um, you need a ladder to clean up your gutters. Instead of having to go and buy that ladder, which not only takes up a lot of space, costs a lot of money, now with Toolshare, you're able to just go and rent a ladder off of, say, your neighbor, for instance, instead of having to, to go out and buy one or rent one off of like Home Depot. Is it an app? We haven't done any app development at this point in time. And we did that for a few reasons. Um, one, development is expensive. Uh, two, uh, we didn't want to exclude any users from our platform. So somebody with an iPhone or Android can access the platform as well as somebody with like a desktop top computer. But we will be uh, releasing our apps in the future. What does collaborative consumption or a sharing economy mean to you and why are they important? Collaborative consumption is really defined as the shared use of goods and services by a group. And really what it means is that it offers, for me, it offers a means to reduce our consumption. In developing countries, it enables people to uh, have access to the things of necessity that they wouldn't have access to otherwise. So collaborative consumption and the sharing economy is, uh, it's not a new topic, but when an expert has been covering it, it's mostly focused on like the developed nation and how collaborative consumption and the sharing economy play a role or impact uh, developed nations. So I wanted to more so focus on the impact and what collaborative consumption and sharing economy have to offer in those developing nations. And I thought that was an important, important topic to explore and really educate people on and, and and see how we can make a difference. So what do you think would change specifically if Toolshare was established in these underdeveloped countries? So there's a number of barriers that first need to be addressed, but hypothetically, we'll say that those barriers don't exist. So this is how I relate to it. Um, I like to work on cars. Each car generally has tools that you require that are specialized to that manufacturer and even models. So how I see this um, relating in say a developing nation is if somebody say has a vehicle or has something, a project or a repair that they need to do, if they don't have access to those tools. Otherwise, Toolshare can actually provide them a means to like get those tools that they need to complete that job. And yeah, that's really the premise behind it. Yeah. A statistic that really stood out to me in your presentation was um, I think $5.35 trillion worth of assets globally are um, open to sharing, I think it was? Yeah, so it's uh, globally there are uh, $5.35 trillion worth of idle assets um, just essentially going to waste or those could be used for like sharing, exchanging, and yeah, they're really just sitting 
being un, unused, unutilized. So how would, if we were to all share this huge amount of money worth of assets, how would this impact the environment? It would impact a lot of things. Uh, if we're able to share, make use of those things that, say, in our, so in North America, 80% of the things we use only get used less, are used less than once a month. So if we can increase the number even by two, if those things are used twice a month, therefore we're having to consume like a fraction of less things, right? Um, so really the, the impact is, I don't have an exact figure in terms of like what that impact would look like. I'll definitely have to look into it. But yeah, I know, I don't know, it'd be crazy. So um, when we talk about the environment and sustainability, there's essentially like three pillars to sustainability. Have you heard of that? The economy, the environment, and the social, the three pillars of sustainability. I believe Toolshare hits all three of those very well, which is very good for sustainability. Um, But I think there's still a stigma with sharing, especially in like a developed city like Edmonton. People would just rather own. So how can we foster a sharing economy? So there's a number of key metrics that, that you use to kind of foster this in developed nation like North America, uh, establishing a trust is huge. Um, the number one concern we get is like, well, what if somebody breaks my tool? It's really our job to have set in place these systems that protect our users um, and, and regulations. But in terms of like growing and, and fostering the overall stigma around sharing, it's it's difficult because every nation has different like cultural norms. I think I believe the statistic is we're 53% of people in 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 developed nations are are willing to adopt. Um, so how do we continue to foster that? I think by educating. Honestly, I think education is is key. That not only are these people protected, uh, but they that they are that they know they can. Uh, trust the people that they're lending their things out to and and borrowing things from. Why do you do what you do? And is there a future vision for yourself or Toolshare? Uh, yeah, that's a lot. Why do I do what I do? Um, so why do I do Toolshare? Uh, I would say because I believe there's a need for it. Uh, do I have a vision for Toolshare? Absolutely. Um, we believe that Toolshare can be the next Airbnb and or Uber, but for tools. And for myself, like I really would love to be able to not only grow the grow Toolshare in, in developed nations, but really introduce it to uh, developing nations, where it's actually making a, a huge impact to, to overall like quality of people, somebody's life. Uh, that that's my overall goal for it. For sure. That was Sydney Carbonic talking with Graham Hansen, an entrepreneur and founder of Toolshare. If you want to check out Toolshare, visit our website at terrainforma.ca. That's all for this week. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6 the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make 
and our understanding of the land around us. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email, tara at cjsr.com, or tweet us at Terra Informa. To catch up on the latest environmental news, make sure to visit our website, terrainforma.ca, or check us out on Facebook at Terra Informa. Thank you to our volunteers who contributed to this week's episode. Hannah Cunningham, Sophia Osborne, and Charlie Blake. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll catch us next week right here on Terra Informa.